Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I get emotional every time I see that, that scripture we just read up there from Jeremiah. That's one of those, one of those scriptures that uh, brings hope to our lives and so often proves out to be right at the heart of God as we walk through our lives, especially when we're walking through hard times, but uh, in the other times of our lives too. And, and it's been a real meaningful scripture for my family and I, especially over this past month uh, as we journeyed to China to bring home our little daughter, Sarah. And um, it was just an amazing... Uh, there, we were with 11 other families that uh, were all believers and all on a mission to bring home children uh, of... of uh, uh, some were babies, some were older, some were special needs, some were not. But we were all counting on God's plan being our hope. And uh, it was amazing to see. We were able uh, in that place. Uh, and I have to tell you that we were a little uh, surprised by what we found there. Uh, we've heard so much about China being uh, a place where Christianity had to be covert. And you had to be careful. I, I remember being surprised uh, how I felt after praying together for a meal, thinking, should we be doing this? But the whole place was decorated for Christmas. And you saw Christmas trees everywhere, and you heard Christmas music playing all over the place. And uh, everything from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to Ave Maria and Silent Night, side by side by side. So it was out there. It was, it was easy for us to, uh, to, to be witnesses in that place because it was uh, so open to hearing the word. We were able to give witness in dramatic ways to how God provides, as the prophet says, uh, to how God prepares and how God's plan truly does become our hope and how the future is different now, how it's better now, not just for Sarah, but for uh, everyone in our family and truly each of those families in that travel group that we were with. It was just a wonderful way to see God at work. And we all left that place knowing we were coming home to celebrations of Christmas and then looking at a new year. And, and, you know, thinking and dreaming and planning for the future is a normal part of our lives, uh, especially at this time of year. And so many of us spend each time, uh, a lot of time at this time of the year, deciding upon some resolutions that we're going to make for our lives. Uh, how many of you have thought about New Year's resolutions already? Hands all over the room. Look at that. Yep. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was doing some thinking about this myself and, and uh, thinking about what I might promise to God as I uh, dive into this new year. And I was looking online, and there's actually a website out there that uh, compiled the top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2012. What, what do you suppose was number one? <laughs> it was almost like the chorus there, right? <laughs> well, let's break them down from 10 to 1. Number 10 was spend more time with my family. Uh, number 9 was uh, fall in love. How about that? Number 8, help others with their dreams. Number 7, quit smoking. I think that's on a, a list every year, right? Number 6, Learn something new and exciting, like maybe playing the piano, right? Uh, number five, stay or get fit and healthy. Buy that membership to the gym. I did that one a couple years ago. Uh, number four, enjoy life to the fullest. Number three was spend less and save more. A good advice there. Number two is my number one, get organized. 
<laughs> Try to tell a creative person that <laughs> one time. Uh, and number one was? Yes. <laughs> now, almost all of these resolutions require uh, a, a steady and consistent lifestyle change over time, right? However, what I discovered in, in, in looking at New Year's resolutions uh, is that even with the best of intentions, a good third of those who make New Year's resolutions will break them before the end of January, right? And I hate to admit it, but I find myself on that list of resolution breakers quite frequently. We always try to uh, shoot for the best, and uh, then we fall short. Mark Twain the uh, famous writer, he said of New Year's Day, he said, now is the accepted time to make your regular annual good resolutions. Next week, you can, be, you can begin paving hell with them as usual. <laughs> and then, you know, what I'll do is, is when people check in with me, you know, you, you make the mistake of telling people the resolutions you've made. Hey, here's what I'm going to try for for this year. And then uh, a few months down the road, they, then they ask you about it. That's the worst part. And they say, well, how are you doing with that? Yeah, and, and I say, well, I'm doing great. Can't you tell? So when I've actually bought a shirt that's like three sizes bigger so you can't see that I haven't kept it. <laughs> so I'll pretend everything's fine. And we can keep that up for a little while. But I think we'd all uh, like to have the sense of a hope and a future knowing that there's something that we can lean into or change about ourselves that brings us closer to that hope and to that person that we would want to be and ultimately to that child of God that we uh, strive to be. Now, we've been journeying together as a congregation this year uh, along what we're calling the, the way of Jesus. Jesus told us to, to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. So we've been taking a look, starting back in September, at all that Jesus commanded and asked the question, what if we obeyed? all that Jesus commanded. What would that look like? The first series was uh, the way of life, where we looked at the ways that we come to faith and the nuts and bolts of a walk with Jesus. The second series has been the way of faith, where we've been looking at how we live into the faith that we discovered back in the way of life. And this is the last week uh, of that series. And in this week's scripture, Jesus is talking to his disciples and to the crowds who have been following around about the future. And the, and the command of Jesus we're looking at today is, be ready for my return. So we're going to pick up the scripture in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, you might find it in your pew Bibles or the Bible that you brought with you, or uh, you can uh, look right up on the window up there at the verse. And it's the parable of the ten versions. It goes like this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. 
Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, this scripture tags on the end of, the, of what we talked about on Thanksgiving, the, uh, the way that God cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields and how much more valuable are you. And, and uh, just before that, Jesus had taught his disciples to pray. And part of that prayer that he taught them said, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus had spoken to them about the kingdom on many occasions, and it had, been, it had to have been confusing to the disciples because Jesus spoke of the kingdom as sometimes as having come, uh, but yet to come. For instance, Jesus spoke of the kingdom uh, as being in the future. He said, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And he also said, uh, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So in that future, it's, it's not yet come, but it's near. And in other places, he used the kingdom of God is near to mean that it's right here, near to you. The Pharisees had asked Jesus when the kingdom would come. And he told them, the coming of the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. After the resurrection, in the book of Acts, the disciples ask Jesus if now was the time for the kingdom to be restored. They said, they said, is it, is it now that you're going to do this? And Jesus' response is pretty much none of your business. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So I think it's because of all this confusion about the kingdom that Jesus tells this parable of the ten virgins as a way of, of kind of redirecting their thinking about the future and to refocus them on what's important. I mean, we love to know the details, right? We're kind of wired that way. We want a timeline, and we want to know where, and we want to know how. Details are great. Entertainment tonight, you know, get all the details. We love that kind of stuff. But we can get so consumed in the timeline that we miss out on the real stuff of life. In the parable, Jesus talks of the kingdom in a future tense by saying, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So it's that yet-to-come kingdom and not the here-now kingdom. The story itself is thought to reflect what might have been a rather typical wedding scene of first-century Palestine. The wedding guests were to be entertained in the bridegroom's house until late evening. They uh, waited there for the bridegroom, whose coming was announced by messengers. Sometime after nightfall, and in this parable, after midnight, the groom came to claim his bride and to take her back to his father's home where the wedding ceremony would occur and then the other festivities would take place. Both the coming of the bridegroom to the bride's home and then the procession back to his father's house were accompanied by bright lights, lots of lamps, lots of torches. 
We also know that uh, it's the custom among the Arabs of Palestine for the groom to be fashionably late to the wedding. The delay usually results from the traditional haggling over gifts uh, due to the bride's uh, relatives. You know, uh, if, if the haggling isn't there, if the haggling isn't done and done well, then the perception might be that the bride isn't worth that much. So usually the haggling is leaned into, which makes the bridegroom late. So Jesus says that it'll be like ten virgins who would have been the bridesmaids, right? Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish, but there would have been no way to tell by looking which were which. Because they would have all been wearing their wedding gowns, their bridesmaids' gowns. They'd all had their flowers in their hair. They'd have been wearing their wedding shoes. They'd be carrying their wedding torch. They'd all pretty much look the same. Kind of like all of us. We've been sent out to, to meet the bridegroom, and we have our lamps, right? We don't get to find out who was wise and who was foolish until the groom actually arrives. It's kind of like the story of the wise man and the foolish men who built houses. Do you remember that story? You know, um, they both built houses that would have probably looked very similar to the architecture of the day. Side by side, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. But man, once the storm comes, the proof is in the pudding, right? Because when the storm comes and when the wind blows, the house that was wisely built on the rock stood firm. And the house that was built foolishly on the sand came crashing down. And it was then that we knew who was wise and who was foolish. We're told that five of the virgins were considered wise because they brought extra oil with them for their lamps. Keeping those lamps lit and burning brightly was an important part of welcoming the groom. So to have enough oil was really important. In this case, the groom was delayed in coming, and it was well after midnight when the cry came. It's a long time to keep your torch burning. Scholars agree that in the groom's arrival, Jesus is referring to his own returning, that not-yet aspect of the kingdom. Then the, the arrival is referred to as the parousia. That's your vocabulary word for today. Parousia. It's a, a transliteration of a Greek term meaning coming or arrival or to meet, which is used to refer to the second coming of Christ very commonly. Paul actually uses the same term in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be forever with the Lord. So the story says that the hour got late and they fell asleep. And they were awakened by the cry announcing the coming of the groom. And what becomes the important issue for these bridesmaids? Was it because they fell asleep? Were they in trouble for falling asleep, kind of the way the disciples were in the garden with Jesus? No, it was, it was whether they had enough oil left in their lamps to keep burning for the whole journey back to the groom's house. Five of them had enough oil. Five of them went scurrying off at midnight trying to do what they should have been doing all day long. I wonder if they found an oil vendor open and available at midnight. <laughs> I remember uh, as kids, my parents would work on Saturdays in an accounting office together. And, and so they would uh, take off in the morning and leave the four of us behind, uh, usually with a list of chores that we needed to, to finish by the time they got home. And, you know, if you took care of these chores bit by bit through the day, 
You'd get them all done and, and things would be good. Or if you were really smart, you could uh, do them all in the morning and have the whole afternoon to do whatever you wanted to do. It was great because we pretty much knew what time they were coming home. And uh, what we would do, our, our normal MO was that we would do whatever we wanted to all day long. <laughs> and then like an hour before they came home, we'd scurry around to get it all done hoping to look like we had been doing what we were supposed to be doing. And that worked for a good long time until the day that they decided to come home from work early. And we were found not doing what we were supposed to be doing. And that, I can tell you, was not fun. (laughs) So having oil, having enough oil to keep your lamp burning brightly is what will matter when the groom arrives. Because those who didn't have enough oil, those who had to seek out the oil they were supposed to have had with them, were told that they couldn't enter the wedding banquet. In fact, not just that, they were told, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Wow. Do we have enough oil in our lamps to keep them burning brightly? You and I. Jesus tells us, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's a big responsibility. How do we maintain a good supply of oil? Jewish tradition uh, used oil as a symbol for uh, good deeds, uh, deeds of love and mercy that were done in obedience to the great commandment. You know, the love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And so for them, having the oil was an indicator of living into that commandment. How do we maintain our supply of oil? Well, I would suggest if we take the word oil and we use it as a... uh, acrostic, we could do it this way. The O would stand for open the Bible, God's Word. In order to know the heart of God, we must look into God's Word daily, regularly. Read God's story again and again. You know, someone once told me that the Word of God is like a diamond. When you hold it up to the light and you turn it just a little bit, Because of the facets, you see something else. Have you ever noticed when you look into a really good diamond that the pattern changes each time you move the stone from above, from below, side to side? And when you read and reread the stories of God, even though they're stories that you probably could spout from memory, something else strikes you. You learn something else about the heart of God. We need to know the promises of God. We need to be able to articulate those promises to others. Paul told Timothy, you know, set your heart on Christ and be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. And he wasn't talking about fancy theological language. He was talking about plain and simple from your heart. Why do you have this hope? We need to discover and rediscover that great love that would cause God to send his only son to die for us. We need to enter into a habit of Bible study, either on our own or or through a variety of wonderful printed Bible study tools. We have some available in the bookstore. If you'd like to get started on a Bible study this afternoon, there are resources right out in the bookstore for you. It's a great way to look into God's Word with an intentional framework. Spiritual disciplines such as uh, Lectio Divino, 
help us to go deeper into God's word. It's, it's a practice of slowing down reading and listening. They call it sometimes spiritual reading. Another great way to be into the scriptures, to be opening the Bible, getting busy with that. So, oh, open the Bible. I, the eye of oil, would be interacting with others on the journey. This whole journey we're on is based on relationships. Jesus didn't come and walk this earth alone. He surrounded himself with those who would follow after him, and he invested in them. And there was interaction. There were thoughts and feelings flying around as they were talking together about what Jesus was teaching them. We know that transformation occurs in relationship with others, and most commonly and most deeply in smaller groups. So find yourself to others and enter into a triad relationship. When you're in a small group like that, you're more likely to be open and vulnerable about your life, about yourself, about your faith. And then iron can sharpen iron, as Scripture tells us. With that, you get accountability. When you need to be checking in with each other about how you're doing and how it's going and and the struggles you're having and being able to pray for each other. So that's the I, interact with others on the journey. Then we have L, live. You have to live your everyday walking around lives as followers of Jesus. The five foolish virgins looked like bridesmaids, but their lives did not reflect it. There's a problem, you know, with having the right confession without the corresponding lifestyle. So we need to hold our lamps every day of the week and not just on Sunday or not just when it's convenient. Living our lives, our everyday walking around lives as followers of Jesus. Give control of your resources to God. We can do that with some of our stuff, but but we don't do it with all our stuff. I don't. It's hard, right? It's hard to trust that every single piece of your life, giving it to God, because we're programmed to think, I need to be in control. So it's hard to give that control up. Look for opportunities to serve. Serving others is a wonderful way to let that lamp shine. There's a, a host of volunteer opportunities. There's, there's organizations you can get involved with. If you just keep your eyes open, I'll bet you find a service opportunity. People around you need stuff. And you can fill those needs. Teach your children. Our responsibility as parents, our primary responsibility of, of teaching our children, we, we have that responsibility, not our Sunday school teachers and not others. Parents, we have the primary responsibility to teach our kids about Jesus and about God's love. Pray always. I quoted a, a, a writer who said, uh, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. <laughs> and so I pray all the time. And then we can practice giving grace and having mercy because that's the example we, we saw from Jesus, right? It's a, it's a practice. It's a lifelong struggle. Being a peacemaker for a day is not as demanding as being a peacemaker year after year when hostility breaks out again and again and the bridegroom is delayed. Being merciful for a day can be pleasant and and quite honestly even fun. But being merciful for a lifetime when the groom is delayed requires you to be prepared. Going on a mission trip for a week or ten days where you lay your own lifestyle aside to do God's work is incredibly energizing. It's amazing. If you've never done it, you should try it. But adopting a missional lifestyle 
a missional view of your daily life, when the groom is delayed, can require sacrifice. So at the end of the story, rather than being a predictor of the future, a prognosticator, Jesus is presenting us with a warning and a promise. It's like when a loving parent offers a warning to children playing. If you keep throwing the rocks, someone's going to lose an eye. Right? They're not predicting the loss of the eye, but rather warning against the danger thereof. They're warning that a change of behavior is necessary to avoid the loss of the eye. So this parable is not meant to lock us so firmly into trying to predict the coming of the kingdom. When is it? Where is it? How is it? So much that we miss out on life, but rather it's a warning for us that if we do not lean into the life we're supposed to be living and the faith we're supposed to be keeping, we might just miss out on the kingdom. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. In this parable, Jesus was speaking to those who were already following him. And I'm saying it's possible for one to claim only with their mouth the promise of God and appear to be one of the bridesmaids, but to be told, I tell you the truth, I don't know you because we've not lived into that faith with our hearts and with our lives. We can't just hold up our lamps on Sunday and then stow them in a closet the rest of the week. What if, what if the kingdom came on a Tuesday? Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. Now there's a similar parable in the Gospel of Luke, but from a slightly different perspective. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and following says this, Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even when he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So here, rather than oil in our lamps, we're told to be dressed and ready for action. Ready to go. The Apostle Paul paints a picture of uh, this in Ephesians saying, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Be dressed and ready for action. There is more, though, than just being ready, right? Servants need to be devoted to their tasks. Refusing to let distractions or fatigue or delay divert them from their duties. 
They must make the fulfillment of what their master has asked them to do their highest obligation and their greatest concern. Be as concerned about the work of the kingdom as a servant who is left to watch the door of the master's house until he returns. The reward is that the master himself, it says, will dress himself for service and invite us all to recline at table and will serve us. We saw that in the Easter story, didn't we? On Maundy Thursday when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and then uh, offered us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we'll get to celebrate that sacrament together next week as a church community. And it will be wonderful because it will give us a foretaste of what entering into that wedding banquet might be like in that yet-to-come kingdom. So what should our New Year's resolution be? What kind of future do we hope for? Brian McLaren says it this way in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus. So what then are we left to say about the future? If the apocalyptic passages of the Gospels of Revelation... The Gospels and of Revelation are not simply coded timelines of the future. We are left with something far more powerful and important. We are left with a balance of promises and warnings, a sense of profound empowerment and responsibility, and a sobering choice. If Jesus was right, if the kingdom of God has come and is coming in the ways we've described, if we do indeed have the choice today and every day to seek it, to enter it, to receive it, to live as citizens of it, to invest in it, and even sacrifice and suffer for it, then today our future hangs in the balance no less than it did for Jesus' original hearers in AD 30 or so. We can invest in today's conventional futures or counter-futures, or we can seek the creative future offered by Jesus. Now, if we trust in Jesus, if we follow his way, if we dare to believe that the impossible is possible in our personal and family affairs, as well as in our public policy and international affairs, we will make decisions and choose directions of one sort. If we believe his way is unrealistic or too difficult or just plain stupid, We'll make other decisions and choose other directions. So it's not an overstatement to say of us and of our generation, depending upon how we respond to Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God, we will create two very different worlds, two very different futures. One, hellish, and the other, heavenly. So my prayer is that we would choose to hold our lamps firmly and that we would pursue the oil we need to keep it burning brightly. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and for the opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in this place. And we pray that you would bless us as we walk this journey into this new year. Lord God, empower us with the strength we need to lean evermore into the purpose that you have created us for. That you would open our eyes to your love and to your truth and that you would help us to pursue that oil we need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.